Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Earlier this year, we did a two-part special called The First Golden Age of Rock, which examined the rock and roll explosion of the 1950s that gave us Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis Presley, etc., etc. Last year, we produced an ambitious nine-part series called The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which took a look at how the alternative and indie rock uprising in both the U.S. and the U.K. shaped rock music for the entire 1990s. Well, that leaves us with two more golden ages to tackle, right? That's exactly what we will start doing with this episode, the first of a nine-part series with episodes intermittently spread throughout with standalone episodes in between, called The Second Golden Age of Rock. What is the second golden age, you might ask? Well, this is the period from the mid-1960s to the very early 1970s when everything, and I mean everything changed for the world on a cultural level. We're obviously focusing on the music, but those changes in music at the time echoed, or perhaps even foreshadowed, the sweeping cultural changes the world saw in film, art, fashion, politics, and even technology. As far as music goes, the second golden age of rock saw rock and roll transform to quote-unquote rock music and saw it become not just the soundtrack to a generation but the soundtrack for a changing society this episode will kick the series off in the year 1964 which is when the explosion of beatlemania portended the arrival of british rock music as an international pop cultural force we'll also discuss the rise of bob dylan and socially conscious music the mainstreaming of the sweet R&B sounds of Motown and African-American music into the pop-cultural American consciousness. And, thanks to the Beach Boys, the solidification of surf rock as an American musical institution. So, sit back, relax, and feel the forces of time hurl you backwards to a more innocent time and to the pivotal moment when the innocence of that time was about to be shaken and altered forever. Welcome to the second golden age of rock, 1964. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one. If you can't lend your hand, 
for the times, they are a-changing. Bob Dylan introduced that famous sentiment about the nature of history itself into the record on January 12th, 1964, the date the album, The Times They Are A-Changing, was released. Now, that is one hell of a proclamation with which to launch the second golden age of rock. Now, isn't it, Arturo? Yeah, I mean, and you know, him, him and the Beatles basically are the two prominent figures that really kind of like launched that whole era and defined a generation, really. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. And so, uh, you know, welcome, uh, folks, coincidentally, to the beginning of our uh, intermittently presented uh, second golden age of rock series. Uh, longtime listeners will remember that we did a second golden age or a fourth golden age of rock series about the 90s, which uh, was really, really intensive and we were really proud of. And then we did a two part uh, first golden age of rock uh, series about the 50s and very early 60s, which uh, personally is one of my uh, my proudest uh, uh, episodes or I think one of my favorite episodes that we've done. So now we're in the the one that counts. (laughs) Yeah. 1964 to 1972. I think that everybody will get uh, massive enjoyment uh, out of uh, this. Uh, Any any related thoughts, Arturo, before we commence? uh, Yes. I think before we continue, before we continue, we need to do a quick R.I.P. to two notable rock figures who died recently. Yes. One of them, Sinead O'Connor. The other one is a the original Eagles bassist, Randy Meisner, who wrote my favorite Eagles song, "Take It to the Limit." Yep. Uh, yeah, with 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 the most incredible falsetto that, <laughs> uh, which is always funny because it was an incredible falsetto on record, but he couldn't replicate it live, which is why he got fired. Because <laughs> because he Glenn, wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wouldn't do it. Uh, he was afraid to do it. And so Glenn Fry basically just said, you know, fuck you and fired him. Uh, <laughs> and then poor, poor Sinead. Uh, yeah. Sinead, uh, she never, well, she didn't have a fair life to begin with. But yeah, uh, yeah you know, if if she had ripped up a picture of the Pope in like, say, 2005. Uh, She'd be a hero. <laughs> yeah. But she did it in 1992, and that didn't go over very well. She got booed off the stage at a Bob Dylan tribute concert, which yeah. is which is funny because how many how many dirtbags were on that? <laughs> were on that bill? I mean, yeah. come on, it was like dirtbag after dirtbag after dirtbag, and she's <laughs> the one that gets booed off the stage. We're now at that point where <laughs> we cross over into the parallel universe. Uh, here we are. You hear that spooky music. And uh, the spice, the the spice time, the space time continuum <laughs> has <laughs> has ripped. And here we are, where blue is green and white is black, and rock and roll is still awesome and predominates on the billboards. And uh, you know, rock and roll is the thing over here. And uh, in the parallel universe, this is a place where uh, reviewing rock albums by new and newish artists is actually an awesome thing that people still I used to buy Rolling Stone subscribe to Rolling Stone and about 75% of my motivation was the reviews right and it was always my dream to get published in uh, Rolling Stone for a review uh, it was the one place I never did get published but anyway <laughs> uh of all I, I got published everywhere else except that but anyway 
so long, very long-winded way of saying that Arturo and I cover uh, uh, new or newish albums by artists we think that you should uh, be paying attention to. Uh, we also have what we call a parallel vault on this side, and that is which our... Is what, which is what I'm doing in this Yes, one. that is what Arturo is doing. That That is our big, giant Fort Knox safe full of our uh, our archives and uh, our, our bag of, of really good goodies that we want you to know about. And uh, the rule there is that they have to be uh, within a decade uh, of release. And that is what Arturo is doing. So uh, if I am our resident King Gizzardologist, Arturo <laughs> is now our resident Goatologist. Yeah. Yeah, this this is about the what the third time we've talked about this band now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, this, yeah, this in a parallel universe where rock music is still a big part of the pop culture, Goat would be a massive band. Uh, we've talked at length about the Swedish psychedelic rock band Goat. Both of yours, truly curmudgeons, had their album Oh Death quite high on our lists of best albums of 2022. Earlier uh, earlier this year, I discussed their brilliant debut album from 2012, World Music, in a previous Parallel Vault segment. This time, in my ongoing quest to turn people on to this amazing band, I want to shine a light on their third album, 2016's Requiem. Whereas their early records sounded like a cross between the heavy-duty acid rock of peak Jimi Hendrix and the exotic rhythms of 1970s Afrobeat a la Fela Kuti, this Swedish collective made a radical departure for this album. On Requiem, they seem to have mostly left Africa behind, mostly, and they left it for the sounds of South American indigenous folk music, particularly the kind you'd hear from Colombia and Peru. While they don't completely abandon electric guitar jams, there is more than a healthy dose of acoustic guitar textures. In fact, you can say this is almost goat unplugged with a heavy South American folk bent. Like everything else this visionary band does, it's an intoxicating blend that reveals more and more upon each listen. You have the opening track, uh, Diorlin slash Union of Sun and Moon, with its orchestra of acoustic guitars and pan flute reverie. Uh, the African influence lingers on the lovely I Sing in Silence, which revels in the lilting, sun-kissed grooves of traditional South African music. There's Trouble in the Streets, which is a delectable slice of Caribbean dance pop, while Goat Band grooves on and on and on with a hypnotic, repetitive, psychedelic-tinged trance. The, the penultimate track, Goodbye, does the same with all acoustic instruments. Requiem is a rich and powerful album of sublime beauty that I think just gets better the more and more you listen to it. Chris? Oh, no doubt. And uh, for what it's worth, the ideal customer persona that Arturo has in mind for turning people on to GOAT is me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so far, it has worked. Uh, this is one hell of a party record. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll admit that, that, you know, like you said, the South Africa, excuse me, the South American uh, uh, rhythms. Uh, yeah. Although I, I, I kind of in, in, in a way, I, I kind of saw this as uh, uh, what what if San Francisco and Graceland had a kid? 
<laughs> it had it had that kind of feel to it. Uh, yeah, my it's it's a remark. It's a remarkably uh, fun and uh, adventurous record with some kick-ass guitar stuff and some kick-ass rhythm. I mean the the, yeah. the the percussion stuff in there, and and not only that, but the backup singers. There's this this chant. Uh, the female singers there's almost this chant like trance like quality to some of it that they go in and out of it's a it's a very zigzag record uh this isn't really a complaint more than it is a lament uh i wish that they like the first i guess quarter of the record third of the record ain't no party like a ren fair party uh <laughs> just where they're uh they're heavy on the woodwinds uh, they're yeah. heavy on the woodwinds and they're heavy on the merriment and the mirth in terms mm. of uh and and you know the chant and so i just get this picture of like a giant like uh, drunken renaissance fair uh uh flute off around a bonfire uh <laughs> i kind of wish they had gotten the whole record out of that because I, that would have been just kind of fascinating yeah you're 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 three for three with me on goat uh this is my favorite of the record so far Mm. Uh, I'll admit that because this, this, this record just kind of fits my, uh, I, I, I always kind of say funk, funk and punk and percussive. Uh, mm. if, if it falls into one of those chances are your boy, uh, uh, Christopher mm. O'Connor will, uh, will enjoy it immensely. So, uh, there you go. Uh, another triumph on the, the, uh, the goat, uh, uh, campaign tour for Arturo. Uh, and now I, uh, I guess I'm going to launch one of my own tours, which is a uh, a celebration of Killer Mike, uh, the rapper, right. who uh, is just uh, a phenomenal uh, performer. Most people that listen to this podcast will recognize him as one half of the incredible uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, underground hip hop. I guess you can call him like indie hip hop. Uh, collective yeah. uh, uh, known as Run the Jewels. Uh, he he's the big dude from Atlanta, not the white mm. guy. Right. Uh, so he has released an album within the last couple of months called Michael, and as you can imagine, it's uh, ostensibly as autobiographical as the name would suggest. So uh, here's my take on this record. Uh, Killer Mike is one of the best rappers in the world, and his uh, new album, Michael, is a fire hose. Uh, the Atlanta-bred and reared rapper, now one of hip-hop's true wise men and elder statesmen, he's about our age in his 40s, yeah. uh, spouts relentlessly over the span of 14 songs and, uh, and 53 minutes about black pride, anger, sorrow, his own bad history, unwanted pregnancy, weed, the condition of the black community, righteous anger over all the people who don't just get it and anything else that was on his mind when he stepped into the booth. Uh, he spits all those bars over beats that combine old soul samples and references with oddly trap beats and an overall psychedelic aesthetic. It's a dirty South of Palooza, in other words, uh, really mostly inspired by the Dungeon family uh, 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 wing of the old uh, Dirty South. That's the one with Outkast and uh, the Goody Mob and mm. Organized Noise. Now, highlights of this record include album opener Al uh, Down by Law, in which CeeLo Green uh, croons over old school horns while Mike pulls off the neat trick of rhyming verse after verse that ends with the words, my N-word, my N dot 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 A. 
it's actually pretty impressive how he keeps it going. And then there's also the song Run, uh, where comedian Dave Chappelle gives Mike a shout out for his community leadership. And then Mike moves through a slow burning call to action. It's actually kind of a it's it's a neat little song. It's reminiscent of some of the stuff Run the Jewels uh, has done mm. in, in right. terms of its kind of weird uh, uh, kind of start and stop, but slow, menacing tempo. Uh, and then uh, Andre 3000, of all people, from Outcast makes a surprise appearance on the suitably weird Scientists and Engineers, an EDM spike tune with the occasional nonsense lyric, uh, which I, I guess it makes sense that Andre would be on this record, considering that Outcast gave Killer Mike his big break as right. a guest rapper on some of their latter catalog songs in the early 2000s. And then uh, what I think is the best song on the record, uh, there's a song called There's Something. It's called Something for Junkies, which is a really kind of moving tribute to all of the addicts in his life and throughout Atlanta. Uh, and just sort of acknowledging, you know, their pain, their struggle and and their humanity. So uh, honestly, I think this will probably be the best pure hip hop record I hear all year. So get on your hustle and check it out yourself, Arturo. Yeah, I mean, I, I I love Killer Mike. I'm a big fan of Run the Jewels. To me, this album, I mean, it's not bad at all. I, I think it's all right. I like it. It's, it's, it's just, I just don't think it's that great. It's a little too much gospel for my tastes. Uh, I think the 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 juxtaposition with Trap, like you mentioned earlier before we started recording, I don't think it wears well on this record. Um, uh, the the rhymes and the lyrics aren't always that great, which is a little disappointing considering who it is. It's Killer Mike. The guy's great, usually. And there are a few too many lyrics where he's taking shots at his critics. Yeah, where it isn't really necessary because you know he's a big time, you know, socially conscious, progressive, liberal artist. And a little, I guess some people have complained. Oh, yeah, you're rich and famous, and you're complaining about you know about the the, the plight of the poor. Blah blah blah. You're contradictory. Yeah. It's like, eh, so what? They're not worth your trouble, Mike. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. No people just as passionate as us about rock and roll. Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon. Help us expand our little community and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. So why are we starting the second golden age of rock in 1964? Well, if you listen to a lot of artists and musicians who came of age in that era, and or who would go on to do greater things, of course, and great things. They always talk about a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of them, almost to a man and woman talk about how the great moment, the moment that made them want to pick up a guitar or a keyboard or uh, uh, get a microphone and sing or whatever, or be a part of a band, even a lot of them say a lot of them say the, the, that catalyst moment 
was seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan on February, whatever the day was in 1964. And for a lot of people, that really was what kickstarted the 1960s. Really, the 60s, you can say, really began in 64 when the Beatles arrived in America. Granted, they were already popular in the UK and in parts, a lot of parts of Europe in 1963. But in 1964 is when the Beatles went international and their fame and popularity and their hit music spread and infected the minds and the hearts of so many people around the world and inspired so many people to get into music, either write about it or be part of it and be musicians themselves. And it really kind of kick-started the counterculture in a lot of ways. Rebelling against your parents was isn't a new thing. In the 1950s, we covered that in the first golden age of rock yep. with the whole Chuck Berry, Little Richard Elvis thing. But the Beatles, they almost kind of transcended um, racial barriers because even black people weren't kind of enjoyed and respected the Beatles. They were these aliens and they weren't American. They, they, they were from this other world. You know, and, and, and in early 1960s America, if you weren't American, you might as well be from another world. <laughs> and when the Beatles arrived, they really yeah. did change that. Um, garage rock started after the Beatles hit America. A, a reinterest, a new, a brand new interest in rock and roll started in America after the Beatles arrived. Rock and roll music itself took on a whole different shape, form, and sound after the Beatles arrived in America. So it really is the, the, the demarcation point for that baby boomer generation and for a whole new rock and roll era that really um, opened the doors up until the early 70s. And that eight-year span really influenced and changed everything that came afterward that's why we're starting in 64 uh well said and uh good, good job of minimizing the human min missile crisis and the kennedy assassination by the way well i mean bob dylan took that on <laughs> we will get to that later yeah but what i'm saying is is i you know i i think the people would live it would say that the 60s might have started with one of those but uh sure hey, but for our purposes yeah uh the 60s in music became the 60s because before that you had like Neil Sadaka and whatever was left of Little Richard and Chuck Berry. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty much. So, and Elvis uh, doing bad movies. Yeah, and Elvis doing bad movies. So, uh, on that note, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Beatles. I mean, you set that this up pretty well, uh, Arturo. But here's here's my own take on Beatlemania. And when we talk about the Beatles in 1964, what we really are talking about is Beatlemania. We're not talking about the greatness of the Beatles. And so right. let's let's talk about this a little bit. So two propulsions really thrust the second golden age of rock into being, as I see it. Uh, we'll talk about the other one in a bit. But here's the first. The Beatles landing in America and playing the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, 1964. Uh, they made several appearances, but the first one and the most famous one where they did I Want to Hold Your Hand was on the 9th. Lots of girls screamed their heads off. Now, here is a wonderful ode to these screaming girls by the author Rob Sheffield from his amazing book, Dreaming the Beatles. Quote, the screamers have all the fun. The Beatles, more than any other performers, tapped into the scream as the girls they once imagined became real. The Beatlemaniac girls remain the most famous screamers in history. 
more than the teens who screamed for Elvis, the Bobby Soxers who swooned for Frank, and the Directioners who scream now for Harry or Lewis. When you look at any footage of the Beatles live, you look for the girls in the crowd convulsing and diving uh, in divine ecstasy. Those girls were heroes, pioneers on the rock and roll frontier. They invented the Beatles and all that followed. Once you step inside the screen, you get transformed into a different person. The Beatles spent years there. Now, that's a pretty fair assessment. It certainly did help that the Beatles came armed with a gaggle of amazing songs, covers, and singles released throughout 1963. Please Please Me, Love Me Do, All My Lovin', Do You Want to Know a Secret, Twist and Shout, She Loves You, and in December of 1963, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Now, the two British albums from 1963, Please Please Me and With the Beatles, were not especially great. But boy, were those individual nuggets fucking great. Yeah. Coming into 1964, Beatlemania was indeed firmly a thing over in Britain and uh, increasingly the rest of the world. With, again, I Want to Hold Your Hand hitting airwaves in late December of 1963. EMI's brass finally forced a reluctant Capitol Records to admit that in the States and release Meet the Beatles with an exclamation point, which is essentially a decover versionized uh, version. It's a decover versionized version of the British album with the Beatles, and they released that in January. That album went from number 92 on the Billboard 200 on February the 1st to number one by February 15th. Obviously, hmm. that overlaps that first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, which, by the way, is on uh, YouTube. I encourage everybody to go watch uh, that performance. Uh, it's pretty special. And so the explosion happened, and the band occupied the first five slots on Billboard's Hot 100 on April 4th. Uh, no joke. Look it up. And the ridiculous movie, A Hard Hard Day's Night, hit with its amazing soundtrack in the summer. And the rest from there was a remarkable history that's been told so many damn times. All we'll do here is admire the narrative you already know. Arturo? Yeah, I think one thing I want to add here is the album itself, A Hard Day's Night. Oh, yeah. Uh, I will argue that it is popular music's first truly perfect album oh yeah from, top, it, from beginning to end it is the first truly immaculately flawless album if the world ended in 19 at the end of 1964 that would be the greatest album of all time although i don't know the the ray charles uh country record is pretty damn good too no no not as good as this i'm sorry what the beatles did is that they took that great 1950s rock and roll and they took their love of R&B and soul, particularly the Motown variety. They augmented uh, the two of them together. They adapted it and they made it into this and and they made it sophisticated. A a new, they created a brand new sophisticated form of popular music using 1950s rock and roll and early 1960s soul. And that's what they did. That was their first of many <laughs> to come innovations. And yeah. the immediate fruit of that was 
a hard day's night, the soundtrack oh, yeah. slash album. And yeah. it's, 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 it, there's not a single wasted note of music on that album at all. If anyone no. says, Oh, early Beatles are kind of cheesy. Shut the fuck up. Get over your cynicism. Listen to a hard day's night. And, and if you say anything bad about it, it says something bad about your individual taste in music. Period. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly concur. I would also say that A Hard Day's Night was probably Paul's Peak. Uh, maybe, maybe. It, yeah, it, I, it, I would say maybe Revolver Peppers would be his peak. Yeah, but. I mean, you can arguably say that, but but Hard Day's Night, I mean, he's got like uh, like several songs on there, like Can't Buy Me Love, sure. uh, which, you know, and, and I Love Her is on that mm -hmm. record uh things are, we said today maybe my favorite of his songs on that oh album. yeah i mean just some just some perfect just beautiful stuff uh on on that record and and it's just and it's a fun record there's there's a there's a uh an energy to it that uh they rarely captured again there's a synergy i think yeah. the, the right word is synergy that i think that they reached again on rubber soul and revolver but they certainly didn't get to that synergy afterwards yeah uh so sure. yeah so so yeah you, you're right it is worth mentioning a hard day's night that was the they released two records in 64 we'll talk about the other one in sure. uh, a, a bit later in this episode but a hard day's night is a masterpiece uh the the movie itself is silly but so what oh i i, I think it worked I me mean, yeah, it is silly but it's silly in an art house weird skewered kind of way yeah i think it really that I, I love that movie i think it captures the essence of what that early beatlemania rage oh, yeah. is all about and oh, yeah. uh i mean the the, the stars of, of the four beatles the two the two who stand out and with their personalities are john lennon and ringo star oh yeah without a doubt ringo is hilarious in that movie yeah. uh for sure <laughs> ringo so. was the best actor of the four <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and then, yeah, and and he he proved it with that with that brilliant classic Caveman in 1981. Yeah. <laughs> Voodoo, caca, <laughs> shit. <laughs> there, 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 there's your Easter egg for the episode right there. Uh, uh, some some love. We're, we're, I'm I'm kind of aging myself there, folks. But uh, Caveman, uh, <laughs> you gotta love it. So uh, as uh, most of you know. Uh, the Beatles, uh, they opened the floodgates for uh, for the British uh, folks, and they were not the only British band that uh, made their mark in 1964. Correct, Arturo? Yeah, I mean, with, uh, with Beatlemania, they basically opened the floodgates for the British invasion. I mean, the, for a lot of people, the Beatles defined the British invasion. For some people, they were the British invasion. But in 1964, other bands started trickling through. And three in particular, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, and the Animals, right? Now, let's start with the Rolling Stones first. Now, history has seemed to forever codified the Rolling Stones as the Yang to the Beatles' Ying, the bad guys to the Beatles' good guys, the supposedly second greatest band of all time, the second great British pantheon band, yada, yada. It may be hard for people to believe, but in 1964, the Stones were just an afterthought, at least in the U.S. 
in the UK, they had risen to prominence as basically an R&B, blues, and early rock and roll covers band. In their early years, they basically raided the Chess Records catalog for their repertoire. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, not to mention Jimmy Reed, Little Walter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What separated the Stones from the many, and I mean many, British bands throughout the country, throughout Great Britain during the same thing, doing doing the same thing is that they did it really, really fucking well. Oh, yeah. They brought a ragged intensity to their sound that lent their interpretations and authenticity that so many of the other bands lacked. They had a ragged look, too, with their shaggy bowl haircuts scruffy pared down stage attire and frankly they, they weren't very good looking <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, dur during this early period they presented themselves as essentially having three front men the two guitarists brian jones and keith richards had menacing quiet charisma that oozed from the stage and of course their lead singer mick jagger with his googly eyes his big ass lips as Eddie Murphy would say, and his uh, slinky stage maneuvers had a mesmerizing presence that immediately marked him as one of rock music's all-time great frontmen and frontmen to come. While they were already becoming a big thing in the UK, the Stones didn't start making their mark internationally and in the US until they released It's All Over Now in the summer of 1964. Yep. Originally a song by American soul singer Bobby Womack, it was their, the, their first UK number one and went up to number 26 on the US Billboard pop chart. It's a kick-ass, chugging rock and roll number, most musically notable for its chiming double guitar intro and the yep. aggressive riff that rides the song out toward the end. Lyrically, it's very much in line with a lot of Stone songs at the time. Girl done me wrong. Now I'm going to pay her back, make her cry, blah, blah, blah. However, the real crossover hit would come later in the fall when Time is on My Side cracked number six on the U.S. Billboard chart. Written by writer and producer Jerry Ragovny. Oh, sorry, uh, Ragavoy, my mistake, Jerry Ragavoy, and originally recorded by jazz artist Kai Winding the previous year, it became a moderate R&B hit for Southern soul singer Irma Thomas earlier in 1964. Her, ver her version is full of gospel rapture, but when the Rolling Stones got their hands on it, they injected it with a sense of boyish yearning and a sweet innocence, sweetness, I dare say, that they we're never really known for Jagger even kisses the track with a spoken word recitation in the bridge, something you wouldn't hear on a stone single again until the late 1970s, yeah. their true star turn and conversion into one of the world's biggest bands would come in the next year. But in 1964, especially with the first two studio albums, the Rolling Stones and 12 by five, the band that would become quote unquote, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, had to settle for being the world's greatest white boy R&B covers band. Chris? Yeah, which still ain't a bad place to be. Uh, <laughs> here's a little bit of trivia for you. It's all over now. Uh, so uh, that uh, Bobby Womack's band was called the Valentinos. 
and yeah. they recorded uh and they were releasing they had released this song and it charted in the hot 100 it, it reached its peak uh or first hit the top 10 on like the 26th of march well or the 27th of march well the stones had caught wind of this in an american tour like uh, four week four weeks before this and loved the song so much they were they managed to turn around that recording that quickly mm. so that their single hit the street on the 27th right and ultimately became the uh the bigger uh the bigger hit uh more trivia uh the uh the womack version produced by sam cook and in uh peter garalnik's uh, uh biography dream boogie on sam cook which we'll be talking about later in the episode uh, kind of funny that like uh, Womack was pissed because he's like, who the fuck is this white guy that's that's doing this to me? And like Sam Cooke is like, what, what are you what are you worrying about? Uh, this guy's going to be a star. They got their own thing. And then, of course, you know, Womack made a shitload of money. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they can take any song of mine they want. Yeah, I was going to say he he he's bitching out of his own pride. You know, ain't no white boy going to uh, supersede me. Yeah. Well, if he makes you a shitload of money, then, you know, shut your ass up. You know, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, so that's that's really the Stones in 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 '64. Uh, if you're if you're the best white boy uh, uh, blues cover band in the world, hey, they could have made a whole career out of that, but uh, sure. luckily they 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 done got sophisticated and became the best ever to do the original take on the blues rock thing. Right, they became the best white rock and roll band ever, basically. Yep. All right, the next band in our uh, British invasion, uh, our little, the little, the, the, let's face it, two or three levels below the Beatles, but they still trickled. The Kinks, as hard as it may be to believe for a lot of people, but for a brief moment in 1964, it was the Kinks and not the Rolling Stones who were seen as the clearest challengers to the Beatles' World Heavyweight Championship. And this was mainly due to the monumental success of two singles released that year, You Really Got Me and All Day and All of the Night. The Kinks may be the only band to have the distinction of having sown the seeds for what would eventually become both heavy metal and punk. How? Yeah. Just listen, listen to those songs, man. And especially yeah. listen to the distorted, heavy as shit guitar sound on both of those yeah. tracks that still sounds fantastic today. The Kinks were your classic two guitars, bass, drums lineup. But the brain trust of the group lay in the guitar playing brothers, rhythm guitarist, lead singer, older brother, Ray Davies, and lead guitarist, younger brother, Dave Davies. Like all British bands of this time, they played their fair share of blues and R&B covers. But Ray had a penchant for writing original songs that seeped into the band's repertoire. In fact, in very short due time, Ray Davies would go on to become one of the single greatest songwriters England would ever produce. Oh, no right doubt. up there, right up there with the hollowed Lennon McCartney duo. However, in 1964, the Kinks were still finding their footing as a band when a happy accident in the recording studio would not only change their lives, but change the course of rock history. Dave Davies mistakenly sliced the speaker cone of his guitar amplifier mm. with a razor, and upon poking the cone with a pin, he heard this wild, distorted sound. Voila! 
Heavy Rock was born and the laid back 12 bar blues song Ray Davies had written on piano was transformed into a power chord driven certifiable rock monster. Although Ray wrote You Really Got Me and its orgiastic buildup from the verse to the chorus certainly drives the song, it's Dave's original guitar sound and wild, rollicking solo that dominate the track. It hit number one in the UK and number seven in the US. They followed that up with All Day and All the Night, arguably a better song with a groovier melody and that now patented guitar sound that drove the single to number two in the UK and number seven in the US. The Kinks really were one of the pioneers of what we know now as garage rock. Uh, the Kinks would go on to have one of the most peculiar and tumultuous stories in the yeah. annals of rock yeah. <laughs> along the way becoming a singularly important and influential band in the development of indie rock and Britpop. but their early singles and their heavy as shit sound put them in the forefront of rock and roll innovation in 1964 chris oh yeah Oh, yeah. I, it, it's kind of funny to me that like two of the great innovations, uh, guitar innovations of all time are uh, Dave Davies accidentally inventing the fuzz box yeah. and uh, Tony Iommi losing part of his finger, <laughs> uh, which which really kind of led to not just the down tuning, but also kind of the way he could bend, you know, his uh, unique way of bending the string. Uh, so just kind of funny. And it it is kind of interesting that uh, the band that uh, really is these days is more renowned for its village green Waterloo sunset phase, right? Uh, hit the uh, the licensing uh, dual uh, jackpot of you really got me and all day and all of the night. Uh, yeah. So it's like one one of the great dichotomies in in, in rock and roll history. And yeah, Ray Davies, uh, yeah, he's he's a genius, and he was originally a rock star, and then he became anything but. Uh, you know, and then of course, you know, him and, and him and Dave for a while there had a nice habit of sabotaging each other in the studio because they hated each other's guts for a while throughout their entire lives. Yeah, pretty much. But, it, <laughs> but it got so bad that like w what would happen is like, there was some album, it might've been low budget, but there was an album where, uh, Ray would do his overdubs and dave would then come in and erase him and do his and then ray would come in and erase dave's and do his again and vice versa yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just very very funny so <laughs> yeah well gotta, the, the, gotta the, the, we'll talk more about the kinks in future segments of this uh uh second golden age series they completely changed their sound as the decade went on oh yeah all right the next and final of these uh uh british invasion bands that trickled after the Beatles, the animals, uh, the animals would go on to have moderate success throughout the 1960s as a second tier British invasion band. And it's probably because they peaked so early in their career with a song that they never really could top. House of the Rising Sun is an old traditional folk song about losing one's innocence in a New Orleans brothel whose authorship is unknown. It's believed to have originated from the Appalachian Mountain region in the 1930s, but considering how there are several old English folk songs referring to whorehouses with the name Rising Sun, it's likely that its origin goes back to the UK. 
The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is from 1933 by Appalachian folk artists Clarence Ashley and Gwen Foster. From there, versions of the song went from country legend Roy Acuff to folk legend Woody Guthrie to Josh White to two different versions recorded by blues folk icon Lead Belly to Glenn Yarbrough, to Pete Seeger, to Andy Griffith, yes, that Andy Griffith, <laughs> to South African singer Miriam Makiba. Joan Baez recorded it in 1960. Nina Simone recorded it for a live album in 1962. And in that year, folk singer Dave Van Ronk had prepared a brilliant simmering slow down arrangement of the song that was making waves in New York's Greenwich Village folk scene at the time. Bob Dylan would steal that arrangement from Van Ronk for his own rendition on his self-titled debut album in 1962. However, two years later, it would be a little-known bluesy R&B combo from Newcastle, UK, that would electrify the song in a rock band setting and have a worldwide smash hit with it, forever making their version the definitive version of House of the Rising Sun. In the hands of the animals, and particularly with singer Eric Burden's smoldering soulful delivery and powerhouse vocal range, it became a soaring, climaxing morality tale of almost biblical proportions. It went to number one on both the UK and US charts and became an instant classic. In a short span of one year, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Kinks, and Animals became the four-headed beast of the British invasion that threatened to take over the world. And the majority of the established acts on the American pop music scene had good reason to worry. Chris? Yeah, they did. Uh, House of the Rising Sun, awesome song. And Eric Burden was a hell of a singer. Uh, and so, like you said, they had modest success, but uh, I was always defined by Burden's vocals. And then, of course, by yeah. the end of the decade, he did Eric Burden and War, uh, <laughs> which, you know, spill the wine and, and, and some of that stuff, yeah. which is just really, really fantastic. But yeah, I mean, they, they, they were like kind of a second rate band that had a first rate hit. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I need, I need to do a roll call. So we have the, the, uh, the British invasion of 64, and I think you're giving some short shrift to some people here. So, uh, here is a roll call of top 20 hits, uh, from British artists in 1964. Uh, some of which will sound very, very, very familiar to most of you. Uh, Dusty Springfield's, I only want to be with you. Ah, uh, Dave Clark fives bits and pieces. Hmm. Uh, Peter and Gordon's a world without love. Hmm. Manfred man. Do what diddy diddy. They didn't really have a big hit until they covered Springsteen many years later. Yeah, but that that actually got to that spend a week at number one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Or it, it, it spent some time up there. Uh, the zombie. She's not there. Yeah. Were they British? They were British. Wow. I forgot about the zombies. Huh? They, they, yeah. That was a big hit. That huh. was a huge hit. Wow. And one more song to mention. Herman's Hermits. I'm into something good. Ew, they suck, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I mean, that's probably the worst of these songs. 
but it's probably one of the, one of the more well-known songs uh, uh, from this whole bunch. So, yeah, uh, hell of a year for Britannia here uh, in the States. And, and it would so, get better, too. <laughs> and it would get better and better and better and better and better all through uh, the second golden age of, of rock. So uh, pretty, pretty incredible. Well, we mentioned uh, uh, the the not much was the influence, but the permeation of Bob Dylan. Chris, on to you about Mr. Zimmerman. Yes, uh, and so yeah, we opened this episode with that bit from uh, the Times. They are a changing, which is the opening song on the record that he released in uh, January on, of nineteen sixty four. So he comes into the this year as a champion still of the folk movement. Uh, by this time, he had written several time, timeless folk anthems and by then uh, was firmly the successor to Woody Guthrie. Now, his album, The Times They Are Changing, which, as we said earlier, again, January 64, seems on the surface to continue his position of strength as that champion. Emphasis on seem to now listen closely and you will hear a rock artist yearning to be free in his own prophetic and profound way Uh, for instance take the lovely one too many mornings and this lyric quote i'm a restless hungry it's a restless hungry feeling and it don't mean no one no good when everything that i'm saying you can say it just as good you're right from your side and I'm right from mine. We're both just one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. Uh, incredible uh, sentiment there. Or you take album closer, Restless Farewell. Quote, oh, every girl that I ever uh, that ever I've touched, I did not do it harmfully. And every girl that I have ever hurt, I did not do it knowingly. But to remain as friends, you need the time to make amends and stay behind. And since my feet are now fast and point away from the past, I'll bid farewell and be down the line. So maybe the release of uh, another side of Bob Dylan in August 1964 should not have been much of a shock. I mean, if you were really listening, maybe it was not that much of a shock. But the main shock really is that that other side of Bob Dylan revealed a nasty son of a bitch, albeit <laughs> well, one with previously untapped uh, 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 gorgeous melodies. I mean, the album begins with the desperately, maybe creepily romantic, all I really want to do and ends with the aloofer than thou breakup song, It Ain't Me, Babe. Uh, there's hardly anything or politically uh, charged. There's hardly anything political or revolutionary about it. Well, I mean, revolutionary from the societal ch- uh, change point of view anyway, besides like uh, Chimes of Freedom. Uh, but Dylan had really, at this point, uh, officially moved on from the movement and in doing so, reinvented rock and roll as a personal and poetic mode of expression. Uh, well, this we, was, at this point, at this point, reinvented folk music. He hadn't quite and, gone into rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, no, he hadn't. He hadn't done Maggie's Farm yet. That was the next year. Yeah. But but to me, this is I mean, it, it does reinvent rock and roll. 
Uh, why? Because it has its followers and people are listening. It really was a seismic shift. So you have to remember, so by year's end, the influence was starting to show across the rock spectrum. Uh, conventional wisdom usually holds that the paradigm shift occurred with the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, and the Beatles' Rubber Soul the next year in 1965. Not uh, true. Nope. Take, for instance, the Beatles for Sale, which the Beatles released near the very end of 1964. Oh, Chris, before before you go there, can I add something that will give credence to your argument? Sure. Uh, before the Beatles recorded that album, they were they were they were on the road constantly in 1964, yeah. as you would imagine. And it was in July or August of 1964 that they met Bob Dylan for the first time. Oh yeah, they had they were already listening to Bob Dylan's records, particularly the freewheeling Bob Dylan and uh, the times they are a changing. They met him for the first time in a hotel room and in New York City. And it was the four Beatles, Brian Epstein, Dylan, and one of Dylan's friends slash contacts. And it was Bob Dylan who introduced the Beatles to marijuana. There you go. There you go. And and, and it certainly does help uh, with this mood. Now, uh, the Beatles for sale, as I was saying, uh, they released that at the, near the end of 1964. That's the real turning point for them in terms of yeah. embracing introspection. And right. a deeper shade of poignancy. I'm a loser. That yeah, well, I was going to say, hell, John Lennon cut to the chase and flat out labeled a growing Dylan theme, naming yeah. a song, I'm a loser. Right. Uh, other than a backfilling of covers by Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, and a couple of others, the new songs on uh, Beatles for Sale are mostly acoustic and are all lovely. Even the up-tempo, cleverly worded, eight days a week, fit that bill. Babies in Black. That's a sad song. Yeah, ab absolutely. And then uh, one of my favorite uh, McCartney songs is on that record, too. I'll Follow the Sun. Sure. Uh, is on that as well. Just beautiful, uh, beautiful lyric on that. Uh, and also of note, uh, we should mention that Simon and Garfunkel released Wednesday 3 a.m. Uh, late in 1964. Uh, though it did not find commercial success until two years later. The album is notable for hosting an early solely acoustic version of The Sounds of Silence, inarguably one of the great folk rock songs ever made, with its opening line, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. So the times indeed were changing in ways way more incredible than uh, Dylan's legion of folky fans ever imagined possible. Arturo? Yeah. Yeah. Just two quick things. And about those two albums that Dylan put out in 1964, the freewheeling Bob Dylan gets a lot of the press and a lot of the hype and the historical De love. Deservedly so. Deserve, but I think the two albums he put out in 64 were better, in my opinion. Um, the times they are a change in from 1964. People need to realize how dark of a record. That is the yeah. darkest and I would say the angriest and maybe the most political of his early folk period. You have the title track, which is anthemic. You have With God on Our Side, which is yeah. his commentary on the Cold War and how you know America is supposed to be the good guy, yet we've done so many bad things in our political history. He There's only a pawn in their game, which is his commentary on how the ruling elite corporate superclass manipulates both poor and poor white and black people to hate each other. 
Um, he talks about the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, which is his song about a rich white guy who beats his black female servant to death and gets away with it in court. You yeah. have a ballad of Hollis Brown about a poor guy. We don't know if he's white or black, but he's so poor, cannot uh, care for his wife and kids, kills them all, then kills himself in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a pretty yeah, it, it's, it's It's some dark shit. Yeah, no, I'll yeah. admit. And, I mean, but it's po- but it's poetically rendered with brilliant, the brilliant choice of words, brilliant diction, brilliant rhyme scheming, and just powerful emotion behind it. And then yeah. you have another side of Bob Dylan came out l- uh, later in 1964. Dylan was already smoking pot by then. But what a lot of people don't know is that this is Bob Dylan's first post acid album. He had already taken acid by this point. And you can hear it in the words, the surrealism that he became known for in his mid-60s work with the electric period. You start to hear it really on this one. You hear it in the lyrics. You hear it in Chimes of Freedom. You hear it in Motorcycle Nightmare. You hear it in in his vivid description of the streets of New York in Spanish Harlem Incident. Um, yeah. It's really there. And yeah, of course, it's also the album where Dylan starts getting personal, but he's also starts to get acid tinged as well. Maybe the LSD is what led him to get more personal. Yeah. Who and knows? Then- Chicken or the egg. We don't know what came first. But yes, that's what another side of Bob Dylan represents as well. Yeah, it has one of my favorite uh, Dylan lyrics on it. Then uh, I was so much uh, older than I'm younger than that now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just I mean, talk about surrealism uh for sure so uh yeah uh, dylan's effect and so those are those are the two main punches uh there's uh basically there's the beatles on ed sullivan and uh really uh dylan uh coming out with another side of bob dylan Uh, right and 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 all and the large number of people who covered his songs during this time and had moderate chart hits with them yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 when the the ball really got rolling with that in 65. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean that that you know, 65. Uh if it wasn't for Dylan in 64, uh 1965 would not have been 1965. Fair exactly. to say. Right. But we'll talk about that in a future episode for sure. On this episode, we gave you the first installment of our nine-part series, The Second Golden Age of Rock in which revolutionary changes in rock music portended revolutionary changes in society as a whole. Well, for the next episode, we're going to cover a different kind of revolutionary change in music that was no less important. It started in block parties in the Bronx, New York in the 1970s, where DJs would spin records by R&B, soul, and funk artists often blending and mutating the sounds into one continuously danceable soundtrack. Soon, some seriously creative people would improvise vocals over these manipulated records, and these vocalizations would take on a life of their own, eventually evolving into the art form known as rapping. Yes, folks, we're talking about the beginnings of the genre known as hip-hop a genre which would eventually alter the face of popular music forever. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report does some forensic research into the birth of hip-hop. Now, from here, 
we kind of start getting into one of the more fascinating elements of 1964, which is you have a uh, rapid maturation of not just white rock and roll, but also of black uh, soul and R&B. And they seem to go in parallel in terms of uh, of the sophistication curve, but also the rapidity of the development and uh, the the rapid fire nature of everything that all, all of this brilliant music is sort of hitting the street almost like a, a, a neutron bomb. Uh, and it it's both in white music and black music. And uh, nowhere in black music was this more apparent uh, than with the, uh, I guess you could say the continuing rise and yeah. probably Motown's finest year. Uh, in 1964. So Arturo, talk to us about Motown. I think Motown's finest year was 1966, but that's another discussion. Uh, It's impossible to overstate the importance of the Motown record label on both a musical and commercial, and perhaps even more importantly, on both a cultural and historical level. With his staff of in-house writers, producers, and session musicians, Barry Gordy led a factory-like hit machine out of Detroit that smoothed the rough edges of Black music, particularly R&B and soul, and presented it not just to Black Americans, but to the white mainstream in an irresistible, polished package. In the early 1960s, even in a clean smooth, slick form. The music of the likes of Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, The Four Tops, and The Supremes burst out of the speakers with an emotional weight and a sophisticated musical power that little else in American music at the time, except for the Beatles, could match, uh, um, unless it came from independent labels that featured other independent labels that featured African-American R&B soul artists, such as Stax or King Records. Coinciding with the rise and normalization of the civil rights movement, Motown became more than just a record label. It was in itself a style of music, a lifestyle, and a symbol of Black empowerment and self-sufficiency. The Motown logo wasn't just a symbol of musical quality. It was a badge of ethnic pride in a kind of music that was slowly changing the world in more ways than people knew, both in the short and long term. Barry Gordy started in the music business as part of a songwriting team alongside his sister Gwen Gordy and a guy named Billy Davis that collaborated with Detroit-based singer Jackie Wilson. Uh, Between 1957 and 58, Gordy and his team wrote several R&B chart hits for Wilson and other artists. Over that time, Gordy also became a producer, producing tracks for a teenaged Smokey Robinson and his then doo-wop group The Miracles, as well as writing and producing for other Detroit area singers. All these songs were licensed to various independent labels throughout the country. But in 1959, Gordy decided to start his own indie label and formed Anna Records, named after his younger sister, Anna, who would go on to marry Marvin Gaye. Uh, Gordy either wrote or co-wrote as well as produced over two dozen successful charting singles in the R&B chart from 1959 to 60, with Barrett Strong's Timeless classic Money, That's What I Want, being the biggest hit, 
number two R&B, number 23 in the pop chart. Success led Gordy to form another label imprint, Tomla, and along with Anna Records, got put under the umbrella of quote-unquote Motown, which meant Motortown for short, alluding to the fact that Detroit was at the time the leading car manufacturing city in the country. They handled their own local distribution, while Chicago's famous Chess Records distributed Motown's records on a national level during this time. Around this time, Gordy purchased an old photography studio on 2648 West Grand Boulevard and converted it into Motown's very own studio. Motown became very much a self-sustained family-based company. A young 20-year-old Smokey Robinson became vice president, and many of Gordy's family members, including his father, his brothers Robert and George, and his sisters Esther, Anna, and Gwen, had prominent roles in the company. Just between, just between 1959 and 64, Motown had an astonishing run of hit singles, and more would come in the ensuing years. In addition to Barrett Strong's money in 1959, there were, check this out, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles Shop Around from 1960, number one R&B, number two pop, and my personal favorite, You Really Got a Hold on Me from 1962, number one R&B, number eight pop. You have The Marvelettes. Please, Mr. Postman from 1961, number one R&B, number one pop. Marvin Gaye's Pride and Joy from 1963, number two R&B, number 10 pop. And of course, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You from 1964, number three R&B, number six pop. The Contours, Do You Love? That one <laughs> from 1962, number one R&B, number three pop. I think Barry Gordy wrote that song. Mary Wells's The One Who Really Loves You, number two R&B, number eight pop. You Beat Me to the Punch, number one R&B and number nine pop. And Two Lovers, number one R&B, number seven pop, all from 1962. The Four Tops. Baby, I Need Your Lovin' from 1964, number one R&B and number 11 pop. The Temptations, The Way You Do the Things You Do, number one R&B, number 11 pop. And of course, My Girl, My Girl, My Girl, number one R&B, number one pop, both from 1964. Martha and the Vandellas, Dancing in the Street from 1964, number eight R&B, number two pop. The Supremes with Where Did, yes, Diana Ross and the Supremes with Where Did Our Love Go? Number one R&B, number one pop. Baby Love, my baby love. Number one R&B, number one pop. And Come See About Me, number two R&B, number one pop all from 1964. By 1964, Motown was not only the supreme independent label in the U.S., it was arguably the best record label in the whole damn country. Chris? Uh, um, arguably the whole damn world. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, essentially, I mean, I don't think there's ever been more talent in one place gathered together. Like you said, you had the factory line, 
with Smokey Robinson, you had uh, you know uh, Barrett Barrett uh, and Strong, and you had uh, Norman Whitfield. Uh, you had all these uh, amazing writers, Barry Gordy, uh, all in one place. Marvin Gaye. I mean, just an absolutely incredible assembly of of talent. And uh, just the fact that you have a single calendar year uh, in 1964, you, you named them all, but I'm going to name them again because it's worth mentioning. In the same friggin' year, the same label and the same studio and the same people produced My Guy, The Way You Do The Things You Do, Where Did Our Love Go, Baby I Need Your Loving, Dancing in the Street, Baby Love, Come See About Me, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, and My Girl. All of those songs arguably belong on the so on a, a list of the top 100 singles in the history of the U.S. charts. And they all yeah. came out the same year from the same place. And uh, here, here's one of the more fascinating facts that you'll ever see in all of rock and roll. This uh, uh, something that Rolling Stone reported or came out of an interview with Smokey. Smokey Robinson wrote My Guy and My Girl on the same day. <laughs> uh, you imagine those are like two of the best songs imaginable. And he wrote them yeah. on the same day. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was one of Bob Dylan's favorite lyricists. Yeah, uh, he was a lyricist, but he he he's one of the top five uh, songwriters ever lived. Uh, you know, that that guy like wakes up in the morning and like he probably still writes hit songs in his head. Uh, <laughs> too, too bad they can't escape his weave. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Smokey. But that 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 that's like the worst weave ever. Uh, but just a just a remarkable uh, temp this is why I'm saying it. 64 was uh, such an important year because, man, uh, so many companies licensed so many of those songs. And I think collectively, uh, it's it's probably fair to say, I mean, 66 is a pretty damn good year, but they probably made more money uh, from their 1964 hits than any of their other years, maybe even combined. Yeah. Yeah, they may have uh, set, set Barry Gordy for life. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, Barry Gordy was set for life even before he came in in 1964, but he was really, 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 really set for life. And yeah. uh, and Smoke Smokey for sure came out of that year, uh, very, very set for yeah. life too, because he wrote most of those songs. <laughs> Rory royalties. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, most of the songs you mentioned or that we just mentioned from '64, he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, or or had a hand in writing. So uh, really just a remarkable, remarkable uh, uh, legacy. And, you know, you're still feeling that now. And think about it, you know, even from here, they were a launching pad for Stevie Wonder before Stevie became Stevie uh, or the Stevie of the 70s. Uh, they were a launching pad for Michael Jackson. Uh, they just uh, they just were a an incubator for stars an incubator for songwriters an incubator for legends. Uh, they just had the magic touch up there. Either that or like Detroit just had a lot of fucking awesome people in it. Yeah. By and the they, way, um, Aretha Franklin is from, was from Detroit. Yep. Motown passed on her Whoops. <laughs> and she was signed by Atlantic. They could have had Aretha Franklin too. Yeah. And they also passed on George Clinton. Real, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. And he 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 was a Detroit guy too. So, so yeah. Need, needless to say, there were a couple of spots they missed. And man, they could have signed the MC the MC five too. 
Can you imagine the MC5 on Motown? <laughs> Kick out the jams, yeah. motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but put some swing into it. Get, get, uh, what's his name there? James Jamerson on bass, you know? Uh, <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, mm-hmm. on that note, we go from, uh, one, uh, titanic slice of black music majesty in 1964 to another correct arturo yes sam cook yep Uh, the year he died yes uh he had an extra sam cook is an extraordinary figure in in the history of uh r&b rock and roll uh whatever you want to call it because of uh because of his rise and fall but also you know he had an, an interesting uh arc uh, he really stands along with James Brown as one of the artists who most successfully built a bridge from the first golden age of rock into the second one. Yeah. Uh, and because, you know, he has his uh, roots as a gospel singer. And then he was a very, uh, uh, he was almost a crooner, but a very gentle uh, progenitor of, of, of R&B songs, stuff like wonderful world, you know, don't know much about history yeah. and uh, you know, you send me and stuff like that. But uh, coming into 64. Now, one thing to say, uh, Sam Cooke had an awesomely triumphant year in 1964 and 1964 was the year he was murdered. Uh, and so that, that just shows you like, when we think about Sam cook, it's really the 64 Sam cook, uh, that is the legacy, uh, Sam cook that, uh, has been revered. Uh, now, uh, Sam started, uh, the year on the verge of breaking through into absolute pop superstardom among an affluent white audience. And mm-hmm. at the time, the record industry, uh, saw the Copacabana in New York as a bit of a, a holy grail of pop glory. If you could play the Copacabana and entertain uh, that highfalutin audience, uh, you had made it. And so Elvis yeah. had played the Copa, uh, you know, uh, like Sammy Davis Jr. was a veteran uh, of the Copa. And so if you made it into the Copa, you were a made man for life. And and this was basically Sam and his manager, the uh, notorious Alan Klein's uh, sort of their uh, mission in life was to get the Sam. Sam played the Copa in 1968 and bombed uh, badly. And so their mission in life was to get Sam back to the Copa. Wait, you mean 1958, you mean? 58, yes. In, yeah. in, 19, in 1958. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, he was, it was not back to the future. 1958. Yeah. Uh, and he bombed so bad that it was their mission in life to get him back there and to succeed. And so, uh, so he was, he started the year on the verge of that. And also uh, releasing uh, his finest album. He was basically uh, being positioned by RCA as a superstar. And Mm. unfortunately, the year ended. uh, Well, both fortunately and unfortunately, it ended with him standing as a galvanizing figure for the civil rights movement and for the soul of black people in the United States. Yeah, he was getting really active in the civil rights movement at the time of his death. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if anybody's seen the movie One Night in Miami. Uh, you know, that really yeah. uh, details it uh, pretty well. Uh, anyway, so uh, a lot of the detail that that I'm using here comes from, uh, I mentioned it earlier, Peter Garolnik, who's like one of the foremost uh, authors and uh, biographers and chroniclers of early rock and roll and uh, uh, what's known as vernacular music. Uh, he wrote an awesome biography some years back on Cook called Dream Boogie. 
Uh, now, there were two album releases that Cook had in 64. Uh, the first, which came out earlier, uh, early in the year, was Ain't That Good News. And <laughs> this was Cook, uh, Cook at his most liberated and his most expressive. Uh, before then, he had kind of kept it polished, but uh, through his success, had won some newfound artistic freedom, and this was his uh, chance to use it. And so he kind of formatted it as one of those Ray Charles country records where uh, side one, you get the rollicking up tempo stuff and side two, you get the more ballady sort of uh, uh, more uh, uh, crooned and uh, frankly, wider side. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, to look at this side one, uh, my personal favorite song on that is this really fun little hip shaker called Another Saturday Night. Uh, in which the notoriously womanizing Cook uh, wrote uh, this song to uh, basically channel his anger or his lamentations uh, at a time that he was stuck in his hotel room and unable to go out and get laid. Uh, and he was a notorious womanizer, as we'll find out here uh, in a bit. Uh, now, side two was slower and richer and lovelier. It includes an Irving Berlin cover, and it's mostly covers. But uh, side two also starts with his best and most important song, A Change Is Gonna Come, uh, which the label initially didn't believe in. It was originally a B-side, but uh, Klein convinced uh, Cook to play it as part of his appearance on the Johnny Carson show early in 64, or The Tonight Show, and it kind of took off from there. Uh, the song is really an autobiography. A graphical tale of him growing up black and in the south i mean it kind of combines imagery from both mississippi and chicago and the song became a real anthem and hope of hope uh, it really became an anthem of hope and transcendence uh, for people deeply involved in the battle for civil rights uh, for black people uh, as we touched upon early in the history of this podcast we did an episode on uh dylan covers uh yeah Cook wrote a change is going to come. He It was basically he had a fit of indignation that a white guy, Bob Dylan, had yeah. written the preeminent civil rights uh, protest yeah. song blowing in the wind. Yeah. And he's like, wait a second, that motherfucker uh, wrote that and he ain't black. Well, OK, well, now we need ours. And so yeah. that so Sam, Sam and his swagger uh, wrote that uh, wrote that song. So now around the time of the release of Ain't That Good News, uh, Cook realized that life's dream and took up a two week residency at the Copa, which at the same time, which at that time, like I had said, was seen as a validating mark for joining that Elvis and Sammy Davis uh, set among right. star centers, singers, star centers as well, but star singers. Yeah. Uh, and so with Ain't That Good News, and a change is going to come coupled with this residency at the Copa and the live album that came out of it, uh, which originally uh, they were not going to do a live record. But the RC, the president of RCA insisted upon it and saying, why the hell do you think we've invested all this money in this guy if we didn't think he was going to be a breakout superstar? So, of course, we're going to release a fucking live album. Are you nuts? Yeah. Uh, and so they came out with that and it became a hit. A uh, really great uh, performance. He he was a song and dance man. Uh, not not just uh, he, he was a consummate showman. In addition to being a wonderful singer, 
And so he obviously, I don't know if he did it for irony's sake, but he includes a really schmaltzy, loungy take on blowing in the wind, uh, <laughs> you know, which we talked about in that uh, in that episode from years ago uh, at this point. But uh, really, really good stuff. And then Cook was murdered. So let me talk about this a little bit. Uh, the incident that uh, that led to his death became fodder for conspiracy theories for years and years. And Muhammad Ali was actually quoted at a memorial service uh, for Cook, saying that if Cook was white, someone would definitely have been in jail. Uh, yeah. Regardless, I would like to uh, read uh, at length Garalnik's account of uh, the terrible incident that took Cook's life. It's kind of hard to believe when you read it uh, and when you look at it. So uh, here you go. Uh, so whatever the case, Sam was enraged. The girl who he had uh, brought back to his room and had left, had his clothes and the girl had his money. Did she think that he was just going to let her play him like this? He went back to the kitchen of the, uh, of the hotel he was staying at uh, uh, its office and the bedroom of the small apartment. And when he did not find her there, he grabbed the manager who, though she was only five foot six at nearly 190 pounds, outweighed sam by a good 25 or 30 he was so angry he could scarcely remember who he was he shook the woman by the shoulders as if he could wring the information out of her she fought back and they got into an uh, into an awkward wrestling match and fell onto the floor she was biting and scratching and when she finally got out from under him she went for the gun he must have really immediately uh, realized immediately how desperate the situation was. But how many times had he been in situations no less desperate and emerged unscathed by dint of luck, pluck, or simply because he was Sam Cook? There was a flash and a report as they struggled for the gun, and a bullet went into the ceiling. There was a second discharge, and he was still standing. The third bullet tore through both lungs, the heart, and lodged near his right shoulder blade as blood splattered all over the woman's dress. Quote, lady, you shot me, he said with a combination of astonishment, bewilderment, and disbelief. In Bertha Lee Franklin's recollection, that was her name, Bertha Lee Franklin, he ran at her once again, and she picked up a stick and hit him over the head with it so hard that it broke in two. So that's how Sam died. Hmm. Uh, it, it it's it started with him bringing a, a girl probably a prostitute back to his room uh getting rough with her and so i think in her mind she was about to be raped and so she was able to escape the room and in escaping the room she took uh, all of sam's clothes except for his suit jacket and apparently his money uh and and so he is Meanwhile, in the midst of this, the, the, the darkly funny part is he's out there raging at this uh, woman that shot him wearing nothing but his suit jacket. <laughs> nothing yeah. beneath, nothing underneath. Wow. No, yeah, nothing underneath. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so basically it was enough to just kind of sort of cover his dick. Uh, and and so it's just a crazy incident now. Uh, the reason it became a conspiracy theory is because the people close to him insisted that Cook always carried like like thousands of dollars in cash on him. And when they found his wallet, 
uh, in uh, uh, the uh, the young lady's purse, uh, there was no money in it. And so uh, they they think something more nefarious uh, uh, happened. But uh, so it really is uh, pretty awful uh, what happened to him. And so, you know, you get that uh, you get this where Cook does his greatest work and uh, leaves his greatest legacy and he makes it as a superstar and then is murdered in such a grotesque fashion that it leads to these conspiracy theories. And so, like I said, he, he entered the year. Uh, on the verge of white splendor, he ended the year as a, basically a, a, a black American icon for both uh, his contributions to the civil rights movement and the song of change is going to come, but also the uh, the really kind of weird circumstances around his death and some of the controversies around that, that uh, maybe this was him being done in by white America. So anyway, despite the tragic ending, uh, Cook uh, he he was that bridge guy from the first golden age into the second, taking his gospel and sweet soul croonings and giving them an edge that set the table for Aretha Franklin, the second chapter of James Brown and many, many others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sam Cook. Arturo. Yeah. Why do you think he isn't as remembered as much as some of his peers? Uh, that's a good question. He should be. I think as time fades, I mean, I think there's a certain, uh, I will say one night in Miami did lead to a little bit of a comeback and in interest in Sam Cooke here in the last couple of years in the States. Uh, and that's because Leslie Odom got nominated for an Oscar for his performance uh, in yeah. that. And so there's been an uptick. A change is going to come, has become fodder for uh, mass covers. Uh, right. it, it actually had a little bit of a revival about 15 years ago when Adam Lambert of all people did a, uh, a weird cover of it on uh, American Idol. And so it's it's become that song has grown in in stature. But like you said, uh, I think that uh, between James Brown and I think that uh, folks like Al Green and Donnie Hathaway, especially because of mm. all the sampling that goes on with Donnie Otis Redding, because of all the sampling that Kanye Kanye samples the shit out of, of Otis Redding. Uh, and then uh, folks like Bill Withers and uh, Bobby Blue Bland, these folks have kind of taken more prominence. And again, it, I think it's because of the hip hop generation and and uh, the hip hop uh, sampling and the reverence. I mean, Sam Cooke does not lend himself uh, his music and catalog doesn't lend itself as well to sampling. Yeah, as, right. Uh, as that. But also, if you think about it, Sam Cooke was so good. Uh, wouldn't you be intimidated if you tried to cover a Sam Cooke song? Yeah, he was a hell of a singer. He's kind of hard. To, you can't really cover him very well. Yeah, he? well, he was a hell of Rod a singer. Rod Stewart tried. <laughs> yeah, he's a hell of a singer and a hell of a writer, too. He wrote yeah. uh, most of his hits he wrote. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of Wonderful World. I think that's one of the great singles of that era, uh, yeah. for sure. But yeah, that 1964 record, you know, Ain't That Good News, that is a very, very, very strong record. And uh, Sam was a star and right. he was only going to become a bigger star. He was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, th at the time, one of the reasons he was going to get bigger, he would have gotten more controversial because he had hitched his wagon to uh, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, he had, uh, you know, and. He had a, a deep association uh, with those two guys. And so he was, he, I think by the end of the 60s, he would have been one of the great stars in America. 
Mm. And and so it's a real right. tragedy that that we really didn't get there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a shame, and there is another sad shame with the next artist we're going to talk about, but it won't happen in this episode. It'll happen in a future episode of this series later on because. The sad story of Brian Wilson is a long-term one, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The Beach Boys. In the late 1950s, Link Ray and Dwayne Eddy, probably without knowing of each other, (laughs) each developed a style of instrumental rock and roll that was captivating and visceral, as well as commercially successful. With its foreboding menace and twangy tone, that instrumental rock sound captured the imaginations of aspiring guitarists everywhere once its popularity made it to the american west coast particularly in california some creative musicians decided to do something with it that became an underrated seismic change in rock history groups like the ventures and dick dale and the deltones adapted ray's and eddie's innovations into innovations of their own. The result was what eventually became known as surf rock or surf music. Basically, this was music as the accompanying soundtrack, whether in your imagination or actually coming out of the radio at the time, to surf parties. Young, muscular, tanned men hanging out with young, lithe, tanned women all either enjoying the surf and the sun by day or hanging around a bonfire on the beach with booze, the little weed, and some extracurricular activities going on, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sounds sounds like a Hulk Hogan video from the (laughs) mid-90s. You know what I mean, brother. Uh, Surf music (laughs) and the culture of surfing surrounding it quickly became part of the great California myth that has been a part of the American consciousness since the era of Manifest Destiny and the USA's westward expansion. In 1961, in a suburb of Los Angeles called Hawthorne, a young group of brothers named Brian, Dennis, and Carl Wilson, along with their cousin Mike Love and high school buddy Al Jardine, decided to take surf music and the mythos surrounding it and do something radical with it. Brian, the band leader and figurehead of the group, was enamored with vocal harmony pop, especially such pop informed by doo-wop and folk music. His ingenious idea, with urging from his surfing aficionado brother Dennis and rock and roll loving brother Carl, was to merge this kind of music with surf rock, particularly with surf rock's rock and roll and R&B underpinnings. Essentially, the idea was to drastically reduce the guitar solos, emphasize melody and what would become the group's famously lush and complex vocal harmonies, and in the process, turn surf rock into irresistible pop music. The result was just as inventive, innovative, and revolutionary as Bob Dylan's injection of literary lyricism into pop music and the Beatles' sophisticated reinvention of rock and roll. In late 1961, the nascent Beach Boys released the naively charming single Surfin' on a local independent label, Candix, and it became such a huge regional hit in the Southern California area that it was able to reach number 75 
on the Billboard pop chart. This was enough to earn the band a record deal with Capitol Records. And in 1962, the classic Surfing Safari was released, reaching all the way to number 14 on the pop chart. And the Beach Boys were now the country's preeminent surf rock slash pop group. In 1963, the band <clears throat> refashioned Chuck Berry's Sweet Little 16 into the rousing anthem Surfing USA, which hit number three, followed by the beautiful tender ballad Surfer Girl, which went to number seven. The beauty of these early surf rock singles of the Beach Boys is that they were able to sell the California myth of surf, sun, fast cars, and fast women to the rest of America, as well as well as any Hollywood movie. It didn't matter how landlocked or how small your town was. Surfing wasn't just surfing. It was a metaphor for how to live your life to its fullest, as well as to live the life you want, not the one you have. Yep. Coming into 1964, Brian Wilson, who wrote all the music with substantial lyrical help from Mike Love and arranged and produced all the records, became obsessed with making his version of the dense, booming wall of sound that producer Phil Spector had so expertly crafted earlier in the decade with female pop groups such as the Ronettes and the Crystals. One of the ways Spectre got his famous sound seemed simple enough. He just doubled or even tripled all the instruments, doubled or triple tracked them. Instead of two guitars, bring in four guitars playing at the same time. Instead of one bass, bring in two or three bass players to play at the same time. Always have at least two drummers, you know, and so on and so on. That's one of the ways Wilson approached the Beach Boys music of 1964. And the new approach resulted in some of the most thrilling, joyous, expertly crafted and subtly complex pop music ever made. The band pinched another Chuck Berry riff for the honky tonk stomper fun, 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 which hit number five on the pop chart. That was followed by I Get Around, which showcased Wilson's ability to not just perfectly emulate Spectre's style, but transcend it with a searing stop and start song structure and gorgeous harmony vocals that soar the song and the track into the sky. It was their first number one hit. By the end of 1964, the Beach Boys were the only American rock group that could credibly compete with the Beatles and the British Invasion onslaught. Unfortunately, also by the end of 64, Brian Wilson, who in addition to his writing and production duties, was also a touring member of the band, playing bass and sharing lead vocals. It was around this time that Wilson psychologically cracked under the pressure, suffering a severe panic attack and nervous breakdown in an airplane as the band were taking off for a brief tour. Really, unfortunately, this would portend the severe mental health issues Wilson would have several years down the road, of course, exacerbated by his excessive drug use, which would result in an even worse mental and emotional breakdown. However, that's a story for another day or another episode. In 1964, though, things were only pointing up for the Beach Boys. Chris? Yeah, they were and up and up and up and up. Like you said, everything just soared 
Uh, imagine this, uh, a single released in May of 64. A-side, I get around. B-side, don't worry, baby. Yeah. That ain't awesome. bad. That ain't bad. Yeah. You know, speaking, don't worry, baby's a beautiful song. Oh, it's gorgeous. And, and that was probably his best capturing of the wall of sound. Yeah. I, I think he really nailed it, it to, to the point where uh, no, no joke up until about 10 years ago, I, I legitimately thought that was like a Ron Nets uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> cover yeah. or, or like like a, a Phil Spector girl group cover because it was so well done. And uh, yeah, Wilson at this point, you know, he's one of the great appropriators in the history of, uh, of because because he was so Hello, Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah, well, there was that. Well, not only that, but, you know, Phil Phil Spector and, and the doo-wop groups and all that. But he was so damn good at the arranging and 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 capturing the pure joy of the music. Yeah. And like, you know, like I get around is just an incredible, incredible song. I mean, that that five part harmony on that and, yeah. you know, that that falsetto that uh, that wilson was capable of and the, the the fact that he is able to uh it, it's got that clap and that stomp to it and that rhythm right. and it's just it's just such a great sing-along and it also has one of michael love's better uh uh better lead vocals as i'm want to say and i've said this uh throughout this podcast on several episodes uh say what you want about michael love the asshole but boy could that guy sing he's one of the greatest lead singers in the history of 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 rock and roll he yeah. he he was a special singer and, and 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 as it turns out he was a great lyricist about girls and cars yeah <laughs> uh, you know he 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 just had he just had a gift for that california beach uh life mm. and capturing that uh in, in words and i will say this thank god for the beach boys because otherwise we would have been stuck with jan and fucking dean <laughs> who had a big hit with a Brian Wilson song. Yeah, that the two girls for every God. boy. Yeah. Yeah, that's Jan that, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and that uh yeah, that uh, Jan whatever his name was, he uh he actually uh, he actually wrote co-wrote that song with Brian uh Brian Wilson. Surf and Safari was the name of that song. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is the period that, I mean, I'm much fonder, like the, like 1965, 66, uh, 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 beach boys, like when he starts doing like help me Rhonda and some of the Baroque yeah, stuff, sure. when, yeah. when, when, when it's when he turns Baroque that he turns into a true genius, but yeah. man, but th this period is just so much fun. And there's a reason that Mike Love has been able to make a gazillion dollars keeping the keeping the touring business you know beach boys inc alive yeah. uh and, and it's because these songs are just you can't help but smile yeah of course yeah you can't help that's what but they're for it's the california myth put to music yeah yeah so absolutely so like i said so we go from so so we go from the uh apotheosis of of black uh music uh hitting uh, hitting uh, the uh, the mainstream in '64 to the apotheosis of American white people hitting the hitting the big time in yeah. uh, in 1964, and so that's I guess that's one of the themes of of '64 is that 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 sort change of, it's change it's 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 change, and I'll let you talk about that in a second, but also the racial equity too. Mm, uh, I don't yeah. think you had a more racially equitable year in pop music up until that point ever. Right. Is that a fair yeah, statement? And, uh, yeah, for sure. With that said, folks, uh, as we always end these episodes with, uh, we have our curmudgeonly community 
uh, Alive and Well on Facebook. Uh, you can find us there, facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Arturo just uh, rolled out his list for 1976, which is comically short. Uh, not not a uh, not a deep uh, bench uh, for albums that year, so I, I had a good laugh on that. And thank you, as always, to Paul and, and, and Daniel for uh, their contributions to uh, the discussion uh, there. Uh, we'd love to get more of you involved, uh, you listening. Join the group and invite all your friends, and we'll have soda and pie, uh, as as the, as the Beastie Boys once said. Uh, also, if you have anything, to, any thoughts about this episode, any complaints, or you just want to call us two random assholes, uh, you can hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And uh, we're on Twitter uh, still, although Twitter is now X uh, officially. But, uh, you know, so we have a presence there. Uh, a couple of great feeds that I want to uh, just give a quick shout out to uh, Stephen Hyden. Uh, uh, who's a music journalist, a wonderful music journalist. Uh, he has a wonderful feed. Uh, Brian Hyatt of Rolling Stone has a tremendous feed. And on the artist side, my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, artist these days is Jason Isbell. Uh, somebody posed the question as to what song would you would you love to hear Bruce Springsteen cover, and he uh, he answered it with WAP. 